On October 17th, during the 16th annual Imaginative Film and Media Arts Festival in Toronto on the unceded territories of the Mississaugas and Haudenosaunee, radio personalities, programmers and producers came together to share stories and experiences about Native radio on the unprecedented panel, an industry talk titled Indigenous Airwaves Covering the Land. Thank you very much. Hi. Thank you for that smattering of applause. Uh, <laughs> thank you. No, seriously. Thank you for coming out on a Saturday morning at 11 a.m. before noon. As a poet, I always say uh, poetry before noon is just not right. Um, but we can definitely do uh, radio before noon. Um, my name is Janet Rogers. I'm Mohawk Tuscarora from Six Nations uh, Territory, and I live on the traditional Lekwungen Territory, uh, in, uh, a.k.a. Victoria, British Columbia, and I'm very, very pleased to be here. I, have, um, I do a couple of radio shows, and I've been producing some radio documentaries, and uh, perhaps that makes me, I guess, uh, an appropriate moderator for this particular panel. Um, but I'm very, very pleased to uh, say that, you know, we have champions of radio right here at Imaginative, and so thank you, Jason Ryle, for being such a champion of Native radio and um, bringing uh, uh, these issues of uh, Indigenous radio, the medium of radio, into into light. And uh, I'm very, very pleased that we're able to have uh, some expertise here with us. And uh, to my right is uh, Brian Wright McLeod, and to his right is Andre Morso. And our uh, panel guests today have been in the radio game for several years. I know Brian from uh, Renegade Radio at CKLN at Ryerson, as well as many other, uh, sa sa some satellite radio as well. And uh, Brian is the author of uh, Encyclopedia of Native Music and uh, the compilation curator, if you will, of the compilation um, companion CD, three CD set uh, called a tr Soundtrack for the People. The Soundtrack, I always get that mixed up. The Soundtrack, a soundtrack. Oh. Of the, of a people. The Soundtrack of a people. Um, EMI Canada, thank you. And uh, Andre Morso, also a wonderful radio voice here in the uh, territory oh. of Toronto. <laughs> and um, uh, we'll share uh, their expertise. I do have some um, uh, questions that will initiate some discussion with the panel. And uh, if there's something that you feel that you, you, know, you really want to have addressed, feel free to, to shout it out to us, because I think we, we, we invite you to engage with us in that way. But first, you know, to get us rolling, when you think, when I think about the beginning of Native Radio, you know, my first question is, gosh, where did it come from? How did we, how did Indigenous communities become engaged with radio? Was it, a, was it simply a source of necessity? Uh, how were we interacting with this uh, medium? And one of the things I did find was um, a quote. This is a, a book that's kind of been my Bible lately. Eesh. I've just been reading a lot of it. I don't want to use that word, Bible. But uh, Signals in the Air, and this is all about the early days of uh, Native radio. And one of the quotes I found in there is, is this, and this will uh, initiate our first discussion. Some say the catalyst for creation of Native-controlled broadcaster outlets in the U.S. was the takeover of Alcatraz in 1969 by AIM. They issued a proclamation reclaiming the island in the name of all American Indians by right of discovery and the offer of $24 in beads and trade cloth for it to the U.S. 
The proclamation and several other statements were broadcast via Pacifica station KPFA-FM in Berkeley, California between November of 1969 and June of 1971. The station loaned the Indians a Marty transmitter to send their messages to the station, which were then broadcast live to listeners in the Bay Area. These regular broadcast statements were known as Radio Free Alcatraz. So my first question to our panel, describe what you know about the evolution of indigenous radio on this side of the turtle. So how did native radio come into being? Anybody? Okay, I just wanted to correct this uh, yeah. opening statement. It wasn't the American Indian movement. It was Indians of all tribes. The AIM movement wasn't created until about 1972. So it's often a mistake, but that's our job is to correct those little things. In, in Canada, um, it was CBC Northern Services. Right. Um, they'd started off in the early 70s as well and they were dedicated to bringing that uh, cultural voice to the northern regions of, of Canada. There were a lot of uh, artists that recorded on CBC Northern Services record label which was affiliated with Boot Records so you'd get people like Willie Thrasher, uh, Mary Thompson, a lot of Inuit throat singers and that was that for me and then there was CBC where you'd um, have people like Johnny Yesno, who was an actor, and that was back in the 60s. So, you know, it's, it's always been there. I mean, you could go even back into the 1920s to KVOO in Oklahoma, which is a huge radio station. Uh, I think it still exists today, and they had a lot of Cherokee artists, such as um, Lucy Maud Underhill, who was known as the Cherokee Nightingale and she dress in regalia and sing opera and there was a lot of stars like that at that time so you had all of these people I guess exploiting the culture for lack of a better term um, reciting music by uh, Cadfield Wakefield Cadman Charles Wakefield Cadman who did um, Land of the Blue Sky Water which became like a theme song for uh, a woman by the name of Blackfeather that was her stage name and she went over to Europe in the Second World War probably about 1917 1918 for the Americans and there's footage of her playing guitar for the troops so you know the the relationship has been a long probably since the inception of any media native people have always been there it's just that we never really stood up and said hey we're here but we're not like that until now we can do that because um, there's so much history there uh, well you know to tell you the truth I really don't have uh, a great deal to say about the actual history. I can only uh, attest to the history that I have with Aboriginal Radio, which started in 1998 when I got a phone call from this gentleman uh, at Aboriginal Voices. This is the original magazine, Elaine, look at that. <laughs> Do you see that? And uh, they asked me if I wanted to uh, be, be a part of the Aboriginal Voices Radio Project. And I had never didn't even know what I've never thought about radio in my whole life and they said well come on down and uh, do an interview so I went down did an interview they called me the next day and said well if you'd like to come on down and I thought well I'll give it a try and it was the greatest thing that I ever did for myself I loved it and it was an adventure because I had no connection with my Aboriginal community in Toronto I'm from Fort William First Nation uh, where I keep a home and everything but I had no real connection so I wanted to get connected with my community here in Toronto that's what I set out to do and 
going to Aboriginal Voices Radio and being a part of that radio project opened my eyes and my life to not just the Aboriginal community here in Toronto, but to all of North America. And uh, what an education and what a great, great experience it was for me. And, you know, you're, you talk about the technology. Um, Chris Spence and I, uh, he, he was a part of the radio project. Uh, within three weeks, when I got there, we were, we were cutting and splicing tape. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, now I'd always get it mixed up. And then it'd be like, blah, 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 blah. And, and I just thought, wow, this is really cool. But we went to the Native American Journalism Association's convention in Phoenix, Arizona, and at that convention, we went to the uh, Walter Cronkite School of Journalism, and they had this special room with this great new invention called Pro Tools. And it was like, what? Pro Tools? And then they showed us this digital blah, 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 and how you could do da da. Wow. Well, Chris was really in, 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 uh, uh, ingenious. And uh, he sent uh, a letter to them, and they sent him... Uh, uh, a demo of Pro Tools. And within three days, we went from tape to digital. And then two weeks later, I went into my RSPs and I took a couple of thousand dollars out and I bought one of the very first digital recorders and a stereo digital microphone. And I dragged that thing around for about a good five years all over Indian country. And I interviewed countless people and that little piece of technology changed my life. The next question is really just a three-word question. Why native radio? And I don't want to hear why not. Why not? Why not? Why not? Because nobody else is going to do it for us. Yeah. It's a distinct voice. It's a distinct perspective. I mean, just for local uh, current events, I mean, who's going to report on Caledonia? I mean, nobody's asking the question, well, who sold that property to the land developers to begin with? And why, you know, I mean, there's a deconstruction that can take place. I mean, with every situation, whether if it's uh, adoption situations, whether if you, even our arts and culture, there's nobody that knows it better than us. But you have entities like the CBC that go, oh, no, we can't have you reporting on OCA because there'll be too much native bias. And yet, you know, it's a white issue that's been visited upon us being reported by white media. So, you know, where's the bias there? Gee, I don't know. But yeah, native uh, communication is crucial. It's who we are, it's what we are, and we need to uh, express ourselves and articulate ourselves in the best way that anybody can. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that uh, native radio really gives us an opportunity to uh, share with all the non-natives, the real positives of who native people are, the humor alone, and the uh, the talent is beyond words. I mean, you know, they need to be given a good shake and uh, be exposed to us, as, uh, as Brian was saying. Besides the native music, which of course is exploding now, and actually it's always been around, but it's, I think uh, more so it's exploding now, what are some nuances that distinguishes Indigenous radio from any other mainstream uh, radio uh, that's, that's available to people? Uh, how are we not simply replicating what's already been put in place? How are we making this uh, medium our own? Because sometimes we don't talk too good. <laughs> 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 you know, there's a whole nuance, yes. 
Uh, it's not just language, it's culture, it's life experience. And I think for myself, being in, a, in an urban setting like Toronto, as massive as it is, um, to differentiate myself from everybody else, it was because everybody was so progressive at that station that um, I just got up and decided one day that I'm going to say whatever I want in whatever way I want about any topic. You, the audience, can think up t uh, 10 topics that were talked about on this show. Whatever it is, how outrageous it was talked about. And it came from a traditional place. Um, but the huicholes, they would sit around the fire and they would talk directly about a person to that person and it could be their sexuality, it could be their sexual habits. And I was like, yeah, well, let's do that on the air. Talk about our sexual habits. Well, we'll talk about, I was like the Howard Stern, the uh, Alex Jones, the Hunter Thompson, crazy horse wrapped all into one on a radio show unedited, live to air, no holds barred, unscripted, and I'd bring in guests and I would ask them the most personal questions and in a couple of minutes, the walls would fall and they would be giving me their life story. That is gold in any journalistic forum, in any radio, to get a person to talk, bare their soul and just tell you the way it is. You can't buy that. And it just went on and on and on. I mean, I'd have people calling in. It was outrageous. I mean, live to air, you got, you know, like just sometimes kids would call in and they'd give their shout outs. And I'd be playing music by Lunar Drive. I'd lower the music a bit. And I'd like to give a shout out to all my homies over. And these are like kids. And other times people would call in and go, man, that was the funniest shit I'd ever heard. I was driving along. I had to pull over to the side of the road so I couldn't crash. And it was. Radio panels, you'd get uh, Milton Bourne with the Tooth of the Lone Fighters, Ellen Gabriel from Oka, Bob Rabideau from the 1974 shootout down at Pine Ridge, all together in the same radio space, on the same show, in the same room, talking about struggle, frontline struggle. Uh, you'd get uh, transgendered people coming in, talking about what that's like, and it was just like this ongoing, ongoing. Um, Jim Thorpe, who is a great athlete, one of the greatest athletes that ever lived. We did a documentary on him. We did a documentary on our native prophecies, the time that we're living in now, and how all of these things relate, and how all the music played in with that, too. Like This, this is basically the playlist from every radio show that I did on that station. And so we did early jazz, or we. Um, Big Chief Russell Moore played trombone with uh, Louis Armstrong, Lee Wiley, uh, Mildred Bailey. All of these people were coming out and out. I mean, I got tired of playing Buffy St. Marie and Willie Dunn. It was boring after a while. So there's got to be more of our history to this. There's got to be something exciting. And there was. And it wasn't just in the past. I mean, it had people like Jackson Two Bears come in. It had uh, live music come in, people from South America, hand drummers, power wow drummers. Uh, I'd had people fly in from LA just to be on the show. And it was like, we got to be on your show. Okay, so you're here. I'd get emails from Japan. I'd get calls from Calgary, from New York City. And this is just two hours, one night a week. Uh, you know, I'd have uh, Denise Donlin from Much Music yelling at me across 
Queen Street going, Brian, your ratings are up. I mean, who gets ratings? I mean, who, ha who, who has, you know, City TV or the Toronto Star or the Toronto Sun come in and go, oh, wow, well, why did you have that dominatrix on your, on your radio show? Well, I had her come in to make uh, bologna sandwiches. Well, what was the deal there? Well, it was symbolic. Uh, first, we've been dominated for the past 500 years. We've been fed nothing but bologna and squished between slices of white bread. Something must be said. <laughs> so it was that type of format. It was that type of forum. It was that open. And uh, people just, they loved it. I mean, there's, I never did it for awards. I never did it for the notoriety. When I was first there, I didn't know what the hell I was there for. I started out with like obligatory 15 minutes every Saturday morning. I'd get up at 9 o'clock, come home at 10 a.m. Okay, radio show's done. And then they gave me half an hour every two weeks just to compensate for the 15 minutes. And eventually it grew into one hour, two hours, and then I was doing three different radio shows on that station, training people live to air, such as Andre and Chris and doing other shows like their Saturday morning news flagship show, which is three hours live radio, global news, not just First Nations news, but everywhere. So you'd have people from, well, you name it, Australia, Palestine, Eastern Europe, uh, you name it, and they were there. You know, Caribbean concerns and all the rest of the stuff, and the Black Panther movement. And it was just all of this uh, liberation broadcasting, but with my own kind of style on it, because I got tired of being stoic, I got tired of being serious, and it's like, you know, this is going to lead to my own suicide, this is depressing shit, so it's like, you got to have fun with it, and if you can't laugh at your own suffering, who are you going to laugh at? Someone else's suffering? Sure, you do that too, but you got to, you know, fair time. Anyways, that for um, me was the distinction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think uh, Brian. Yeah, very well. <laughs> Brian, sir, you hit on something there. You know, when you talk about, uh, we sometimes we don't talk good, eh? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But what I'm thinking, what was going through my mind was because of having gone all over, you know, Indian country, North America, uh, to all these different res radio stations, and you realize that what happens mostly is there's struggle, there's hardship, there isn't the funding, they don't have, you know, they don't have the trappings. So what happens when you have struggle and hardship and no funding? You get really creative uh, programming, and I think that uh, Brian touches hits that right on the nail, but then there are other kinds of programming that come out of that, you know, and uh, that's, that's where a real part of the excitement is, because there's, uh, let's say, 633 communities in, in uh, Canada, and uh, there's uh, 633 opportunities there for some pretty original programming. Yeah. So yeah, we do have a question, actually. Houston, hit us up. Hi, good morning. You're calling, you're calling, our air is uh, Houston, Cyprus. Go ahead, Houston. Nation in Miami, Florida. And can you tell us a little bit about how the technology and the equipment that y'all are using has changed in, um, in your experience and what we're using today and what we're looking forward to in the future? Well, it's all digital now, isn't it? When I was doing my thing, I would rehearse for like two weeks because I had two turntables, a cassette machine, three cart machines. Uh, am I missing anything? And it would all be live, and it would all be programmed. I'd do this, that, and it's like, wow, and your script, and your microphone, and all your levels. And so, you know, who needs that? I mean, it was fun while you are there. It was an experience to be able to play with all of that stuff and, like, 
pull it off. But now it's like you just press a button and it's done. You I can mean, make it's a radio like, show on your phone. Yeah, just add water and you yeah. got an instant radio show. Yeah, you know, uh, when I, I look at uh, native news wires, for instance, that have uh, audio components to it, like nationtalk.ca. I do a lot of, I've been volunteering with them for like eight years doing interviews with people from every kind of walk of life. And, you know, for the longest time, it was uh, always doing the interview in person. But now you can Skype it. You can do it on the phone. I mean, it's, it, it, it really has, uh, I think that what's really changed in the past decade is that you can really connect with the world from anywhere. You can talk to anyone and be right there and get good quality sound, have it taped, you know, edit it yourself and shoot it out. So the world has become really small uh, and very accessible. Um, I'm going to pose one more question to the panel, and then uh, we're going to hear actually an audio clip from... uh, 1969. Who was alive then? I was. Oh, I really yeah, was. Yeah, I really was. <laughs> um, that will demonstrate, you know, how far the indigenous um, uh, news telling came from from Alcatraz. Actually, it's a news it's a newscast from uh, Alcatraz. But uh, first, I wanted to ask the panel um, through embracing ra- the medium of radio into our communities and into our uh, individual selves and our families, what has been gained and what has been lost in that practice, culturally speaking? I think there's more of an outlet for our concerns, our thoughts, our creativity. I mean, that's pretty obvious. But what's been lost, probably opportunities for certain people that might otherwise have gone further or succeeded or even had access to the airwaves. Because when our own cultural mafia take over certain aspects and elements of the media, they have a tendency to shut out everybody and keep the cash cow for themselves to buy sailboats, renovate their homes, take trips to Paris, France, do whatever you want. Just don't bother me, don't knock on this door because you're not getting on our airwaves. As a matter of fact, nobody is except our own personal playlist of the Rolling Stones and Lady Gaga because that's what represents native culture. So I think that's what's been been lost is the humility that's been lost is the honesty what's been lost is the integrity on certain levels but you know we get that in everything you get it in all industries whether it's mining forestry uh, clothing manufacturing uh, painting design all of it I mean it's just uh, another avenue of uh, what's right and what's wrong with uh, those damn Indians (laughs) you know it's it's a real crime uh, that Uh, that kind of abuse couldn't be checked by the quote-unquote powers that be, that uh, situations when they arise like that within our own media, that they can't be addressed quickly and, uh, you know what I mean? But systems are set up. Well, it's an extension of family dysfunction. And where does that come from? It comes from the government policies and the residential schools and the treaty terminations and all the rest of it. I mean, it's just... It's just uh, another symptom of this genocidal process. I mean, you know, it's not to say we aren't to blame. I mean, at some level, when you do have that Haldeman line, you do have a a moral responsibility and a moral obligation to yourself as a human being to make the right choice. 
Okay, then. Um, we're going to move on to, uh, we have five minutes left in uh, this panel. Um, and uh, why don't we take some time to listen to the audio clip that we have lined up. We started today's panel by um, giving, giving the suggestion that uh, activists and the AIM Society, which wasn't in existence at the time that it's suggesting it started, uh, was the impetus for um, embracing radio f within our communities to get our voices and our uh, ac activist events out. And uh, so here's a clip from that time. On Alcatraz. Last November on Alcatraz, a few small boats in the early morning hours landed on those rocky shores and on the dock on the east side of the island. Inside the small boats were Indians who claimed Alcatraz was theirs and had been since the white man was still in Europe before he got to the United States. Now the Indians have been allowed to stay on Alcatraz since November. There have been at times as many as 600 people out there. But the hardcore has always been 50 to 100, and now they're down to about 75. They want it made into a cultural center for Indians, even though it's inaccessible, very expensive to build on, and hard to furnish with things like water and electricity because it's so remote from the mainland of San Francisco. Uncle Sam's been wishy-washy about the whole thing. He never really tried to kick the Indians off, never really tried to make it comfortable for them to stay. There have been a lot of propositions from a lot of people about what should be done with Alcatraz, including some kind of a space museum that would draw visitors from all over the world, or the Indians' own plan, that cultural center. Now it appears Uncle Sam may have decided to really make a decision, booting the Indians off and making Alcatraz into a federal park after demolishing all the old prison buildings out there that held men like Scarface Al Capone and Babyface Nelson. One of the Alcatraz Indian hardcore members who still remains on the island, Bob Bradley, came into San Francisco yesterday to speak as the public relations director for the Indians about the Indians' reply to this new national park plan from Uncle Sam. The current proposal, the answer is still no to the government, that they will not make a park out of it. And on May 31st will be Indian Liberation Day, and the news media are invited out there, and we'll be give the rest of our press release at that time. At that time, Sunday, there could be 100 to 200 people on Alcatraz Island. Some fancy invitations have been printed up and were issued a couple of weeks ago. Bradley, talking with KYA's Larry Brownell, uh, was asked if anybody from the government has really asked the Indians to get off the rock. Oh, not as, not as yet. But uh, we'll be keeping open broadcast uh, in case anything does happen. That'll be about our only direct means of... Uh, communications, plus our own mobile radio that we have out there. You still have no regular telephone, though, is that right, correct? No, the government won't let us have one. So you haven't seen any actual, uh, as of the time you left, uh, no people from the Interior Department, uh, parks people or anybody like that? Nobody. Bradley, talking with Brownell, made a good estimate on how many Indians are still out there on Alcatraz. Yeah, from 70 to 125. So some of the children there, too? Or? Yes. Children, men and women, families are still there. How are things now? How are conditions? Conditions are pretty good. They're pretty good for a while. 75,000 gallons of water remain on Alcatraz Island. It'll take quite a while to drink that, but when it's gone, there'll be no more. The government very quietly took away the barge that's used to take water to Alcatraz. There are no pipes from the mainland there. There is an underground electrical line, but we're told it now has been disconnected. We don't have the water barge right now. Has that been taken away? Uh, as far as we know, we haven't received it back yet. 
sad music <laughs> for that event um, but I do want to thank um, our panelists any like really really last words it's been a slice radio <laughs> radio is like uh, open up opportunities for a lot of people and uh, just on my show it gets CBC uh, producers calling the guests that I had on come on into CBC so it, it was an avenue for, for a lot of people and so did the spin-offs that came out of that experience with people like Andre and people like Janet and Elaine I mean you know it's just uh, it's really has been a slice and thank you for being here and as always it's uh, great to be here with one of my one of my earliest radio mentors Mr. Brian Wright McLeod and thank you to all of you my absolute pleasure. Thank you, Imaginative, for creating a space for this. That's great. Um, I just want to let everyone know that I'm gifting our panelists with some uh, nice honey uh, from Vanderhoof, B.C. So this is from way up north. The up north bees Ice made honey. this honey. Ice honey. <laughs> Vanderhoof, B.C. And thank you, everybody, for, for joining us today. And I just wanted to also gift um, Jackson an early birthday present. This is for you, bro, because it's been such a pleasure to work with uh, Jackson. Happy birthday. Happy He's going to be 25. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks to our panel guests, Brian Wright McLeod and Andre Morso. Thanks to hosts at Imaginative Film and Media Arts Festival. This has been Indians on the Airwaves Native Radio Panel, made possible by CFUVFM and the CRFC Radio Meters Fund. My name is Janet Rogers. Thanks for listening.